Uh, we're going to start out with a um, general approach first about the Holy Spirit. Who and what? Who or what is the Holy Spirit? And uh, it's important, I think, to create in your minds the feeling that I don't care which it is. I just want to know what the Bible says about it. In other words, if the Bible were to teach that the Holy Spirit is a force or is an energy or something, that would be fine with me. If it teaches He is a person, I have no reason to want Him to be an energy or a force to the point that I would reject what the Bible says about it being a person. And we have to prepare our minds to uh, accept what the Bible says about these things, to look at the evidence and then make the decision. So many people have bought into a doctrine, and because of that doctrine, then, they, uh, uh, they want to do anything to support it. They will either twist and pervert scriptures to make them teach what they want, or they will ignore passages that would teach contrary to what they're saying, and thus build their case by uh, carefully selecting passages and ignoring the rest. And I think that one of the problems through the years in dealing with the Holy Spirit is there's not been a whole Bible study of the Holy Spirit. There's been more just a very limited approach to studying the Holy Spirit most of the time with an effort to prove whatever you want to prove about the Holy Spirit. And I have found among Pentecostal people that uh, whereas you would think that they were probably more informed about the Holy Spirit than most anybody else, I have found that they are probably more uninformed about the Holy Spirit than anybody else. And uh, all the things we're going to look at, the problem is that though we may come to a very very good understanding and may be absolutely convinced of the truth of what we're saying, Pentecostal people sometimes will not often, in fact, will not even allow reason to be used. And you you have to find somebody who is willing for that before you have much chance with them. So when you come into contact with a Pentecostal person, whether you're going to be able to do anything with that person or not depends on whether they are willing to make a rational study. And so if you begin and they just immediately say, oh, I don't care about all that stuff, I just want to go by what's in here and all that, and they won't give you a hearing, then no amount of reasoning, no amount of scripture is going to make any difference And you must understand that's not a reflection on you. Many times when we're dealing with people that are steeped in false doctrine and we can't uh, can't get through to them, we can't persuade them, we take it personally and we feel like I'm a failure. Well, no, you're not a failure. Now, you can regret that they will not give you a hearing and that they're therefore not learning and so on. But don't feel guilty about it. And don't don't, uh, feel that it's the uh, weakness of the evidence the weakness of the scripture. No, it is a predisposition and a presupposition that they come to the study with that keeps them from being able in their own minds to be able to think about this and reason concerning it. So the first study here, we're going to kind of look generally at the Bible, looking at the Holy Spirit, and then during the week we're going to do more looking uh, over the whole Bible and seeing what we learn from the Holy Spirit. But I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit is not haphazard uh, being and the Scriptures are not haphazard in what they say about Him, but that we can actually uh, we can uh, infer from the Scriptures a system of doctrine uh, about the Holy Spirit and what He does, about miracles, 
and all of that. I think it's also appropriate for us to uh, have a certain bit of humility about us any time we are studying deity and not feel that we can necessarily learn everything or understand everything. We can know only what is revealed. Beyond that, we cannot go. And we have to learn to be satisfied with what is revealed. So we'll begin by asking the question, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And in determining that, I think that one of the most important keys is to look at the words that God has chosen um, by which to refer to the Holy Spirit. In both the Hebrew and the Greek languages, he has chosen a word, like in the Old Testament, he has chosen this word, pronounced ruach, ruach. And in the New Testament, he has chosen the word Numa, from which we get pneumatic, the idea of something that is still there. So the word ruach and the word numa are both used in the sense of breath, wind, and spirit. And likewise, numa is used in the sense of breath. Wind and spirit. So these words are found translated in this fashion. So that's in the Old Testament and in the New. And I thought we'd look at a, a place or two like uh, Job. Let's go back to the Old Testament first of all. <clears throat> and uh, what I want you to do is to see for yourselves. And uh, also you can amplify this study on your own. And uh, one of the best ways to do that, and it's a way that almost any, anybody can use, is that you can uh, get... Uh, now, I have always used Young's Analytical Concordance. I have not used Strong's, and I don't know whether it did the same thing or not, but I suppose it would. But the thing I like about Young's is that he will list the word as it is in the English text particularly the King James Version. Young's is based on the King James Version. If you find an English word, Young will then give you the original, he'll give you this word, like you looked up spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, so, you know, you tell your Old Testament pastors, well, at the beginning of the list, he will give you both the transliterated version, and he will also, like he will list the uh, he would give you the Hebrew, but then he would also give you the transliterated word so that you can then say, okay, that's the word, that's my word that I'm looking up right here. So, you can look up various passages. You can look up various passages and, and expand the kind of thing that we're doing and just find other passages that teach this as well. Like in Job 9 and verse 18... And, and I deliberately picked this one because it seems to me to be absolutely unassailable that it's talking about bread. He will not suffer me to take my breath. And it's in a context where he says, you know, he is so constantly afflicted that he will, God will not suffer him to take his breath. You know, so we, we use that expression ourselves, take a breath, you know, take a breather. And so this, uh, this is obviously the idea of bread here 
And uh, then in uh, Acts 17 and verse 25, where the word pneuma is used, Acts 17 verse 25, the Apostle Paul, in his speech on Mars Hill, says he giveth to all life and bread. He giveth to all life and bread. So we see these words used like that. Uh, I didn't look up words for wind, but I did then look up words for spirit. Well, I did look up for wind, too. That, that is the one I did look up. Uh, Exodus 14. Now, that's one that you can remember because God caused a strong east wind to blow all night to divide the waters of the Red Sea. So you remember that story, don't you? So he caused a strong east wind, a strong east ruach, to blow all night. And uh, then in John 3 and verse 8, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, The wind bloweth where it will. It comes, and we don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. So, uh, and then of course, many times in the Old Testament and in you, it is translated as spirit. So I just illustrated that the word commonly translated spirit in the Old Testament and you is also translated breath or wind in both, both words both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in addition to me, in, in addition to this, we've got the problem that the word spirit itself, this English word spirit used to translate these terms, that that word itself can sometimes mean not a being but a disposition. It can just mean an attitude, a disposition. And uh, I use the uh, example here in 1 Corinthians 4.21. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and a spirit of gentleness? So clearly, we're not talking about a being here, this spirit. We're talking about a spirit consisting of gentleness. So Paul is saying, shall I come to you and have to be harsh in dealing with you and your sins? Or shall I come to you in gentleness? So that we can be with one another and comfort one another and so on. So it can obviously mean a disposition, and sometimes uh, it's a little difficult. In some passages, it's a little difficult to know whether it's talking about a disposition that is uh, created by, by God, or is it talking about the Spirit Himself, the Being. And uh, then, of course, I have the example here in Matthew 28:19, where He is uh, put on a par with the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's one of the passages that to me would, would strongly show that He is a being. Because, you know, you wouldn't be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and, and of uh, happiness. So happiness is not going to have a name. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and happiness. No. It's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've got three beings here. So I think that, that that's uh, one of the ways that we can tell the Holy Spirit is a being. But anyway, now this, this is what we need to know about the word used to translate spirit. And I think from that we can begin and determine what the Holy Spirit is. I think there are keys to this. So as we come back to the words translated the spirit, you think about what, <clears throat> what these things do. Uh, in the Bible, we read about Ezekiel going to the valley of dry bones, and God calls the wind to blow, and uh, it enters into them, and then they are breathing. In other words, it's animating. It animates. The breath animates. God 
breathed into the breath into the nostrils of Adam, and he became a living soul. The, the breath entering animates whatever it enters into. The wind blowing on a thing moves that thing or can destroy that thing. The wind makes an impact. It has an influence. So that the breath has an influence. The spirit has an influence. It has an impact upon things. And the, the spirit, as he uh, deals with people in various passages, we'll look at a lot of those later. But I think that the thing that has in common is that the spirit exerts the divine influence upon whatever it is that God wants. Uh, whatever it is that God has in mind, He wants His divine influence exerted upon. The Holy Spirit is the means of that exertion. So I think that that is consistent with the, the, the words that are used here and the way they are used. And I believe that God was telling us by using these words in these different ways that this is what the Holy Spirit is. This is what He does. He exerts the divine influence. Now when you look in the Old Testament and remember that in the beginning uh, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the water so that He contemplated the word means to contemplate, to be concerned with the outcome. So here the Spirit is brooding over. And there again, you, you know, happiness doesn't brood. Here's the Spirit brooding, contemplating. And Job 26.13, God garnished the heavens with His Spirit. So the Spirit's involved here in, in the creation. And so He is exerting the impact. But now here's the thing I was going to say. In the creation... You have the Bible teaching that it was the Father who purposed. He had his purpose, of which the creation was just a, an unfolding. It was a part of the purpose of God. We learn in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And Colossians 1 makes that same point. Hebrews 1 makes that same point. That all things were made through Jesus. So you have a purpose of the Father, execution by the Word, by the Son, before He became the Son, as, as the Word, and then the finishing and organizing of the Spirit. Now it appears to me that that is true when you look at the creation. We know from Scriptures, we know from Genesis 1, 1, we know from John 1, 1 through 3, and we know from Genesis 1-3 that all three of these divine beings that constitute deity were there at the creation. And so I think that the, the Bible uh, clearly shows that God purposed, everything was done according to His purpose, that it was executed through the Word, who was deity before He became flesh, and then finished and organized and brought to be just what God wanted it to be. So that in every case, after every act, God saw that it was good. So it was accomplished. The Holy Spirit was accomplishing exactly what God wanted it to be. And then when the Spirit finished, it was organized the way God wanted it to be. Now I find that same analogy when I look at the church. I find that the church was according to the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. I find that Jesus comes and says, I will build my church. 
So he comes and builds the church by the work he does, and so on. But when the church is established on the day of Pentecost, it was established with an outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, so they could carry out their apostolic commission. And the Holy Spirit was added.